Heidi White. I'm Tim McIntosh. And you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader on which we are discussing Alexander Solzhenitsyn's One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich. And as you can tell, you do not hear the voice of our fearless leader, David. He is running a little behind. So we said we would get started without him, but he'll be here any minute. Um, so, Tim, before we get started, how are you? Good. How are you, Heidi? I'm doing great. It's my second week of school. I am adjusting. I realize after reading today that I do not live in a work camp. And so my life is <laughs> really blissful comparatively. And I'm yeah. So grateful for uh, living the life I do. So. You're back to teaching. You mentioned off the air that this is the only year that you're going to be able to teach both of your kids in the same year. Is that true? That's right. I mean, other than, I mean, homeschooling, I obviously, right. right. Yes. But I don't really teach them anymore. They're 17 and 14. And so they're pretty much on their own. At best, I'm a curator, really more of a cheerleader and a coach yeah. when needed. Um, but I do teach at, I teach at a hybrid school that my kids attend and so we're in the classroom two days a week and I teach the high school humanities program, but Lucy is now a ninth grader and Jack is a senior. And so I've had Jack in my classes, but not Lucy. And then after this year, I'll have Lucy and not Jack. And so this is the year. Yeah. This is the year I have both of them in the classroom. I'm actively teaching them. And I'm just so grateful for that opportunity, especially as a homeschool mom. I get kind of the best of both worlds. I suppose if you don't love teaching the way I do, then you get the worst of the worlds. But right. I love it. So I'm so Good grateful. For you. Yeah. Good for yeah. you. How's little Arden Anne these days? She's really good. She's adding new little aspects to her personality. She's gotten extremely, I don't know how you describe it, grabby. She, if it's yeah. loose and shiny, she is grabbing for it. We, so here's what's happened in our house. We haven't, she, Arden is five and a half months. We haven't done any sort of sleep training and she's getting up two times a night, roughly. Okay. And then she gets up pretty early. So, and because we are not using the bottle, we're only breastfeeding. My wife is doing all of it. This yeah. is the only, as far as I can tell, this has been the big mistake that we have made by not getting her on the bottle so I can help with feeding. Cause right now, like she won't even look at a bottle. I'll right. like try to give her the bottle and she'll be like, what are you kidding me? Do you know what I'm used to? Like you're offering me whatever cube yeah. steak and I'm used to prime rib all the time. No, get that bottle away from me. So my wife is not sleeping as much as she wants or I want. So in the mornings, I'm sneaking away. It's not sneaking away, but I'm getting Arden out of the bassinet and I'm taking her to the pool because the pool is still open and it's still kind of warm and it's really early and nobody's out there and me and Arden Ann are at the pool and she loves it because it's like lights playing off the water and there's lots of interesting things to look at. And this morning, I took her to the gym. There's a gym at our complex. I was like, maybe nobody will be in there. And I took her in there and we were in there for like 30 minutes and she was really happy, just daddy and daughter at the gym while mom sleeps. We might have settled on an incredible solution. We'll yeah, see if it I think you're doing everything right. There is no right way to navigate those nursing months and to have her attached to mom is a I think long term you'll think of that as a blessing and you're doing such a great job take her to the pool take her to the gym <laughs> that's right although these hey, are the only up. this is the only time in life that those jiggly thighs are adorable so <laughs> don't get too ambitious with your gym yes time. my daughter has like ham hocks for thighs and they are <laughs> the cutest thing in the world um, so we have a visitor. Actually, he's our, <laughs> he's not a visitor. He's David, I, the David Kern. <laughs> he has arrived, ladies and gentlemen. Hi, David. Hey, how's it going? Good. Uh, always nice to, to, uh, you know, enter a conversation about, uh, jiggly thighs. That's um, right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. 
There's Which, not a lot of those in Ivan Denisovich. Though. I was literally just no. going to say a lot yeah, of there's, a, there's a transition ones. there. Yes. yes. <laughs> um, well, yeah, it's good to be here. Sorry, yeah. sorry, I'm late. We're okay. We were talking about babies, so yeah, we need a reprieve from just the gaunt cold that is Siberia. Yeah, I know. And a reminder that there's the joy mid- in life. Yeah. Oh my God. Heidi, have you asked him how many times he's read this yet? No, we have not talked about the book at all. And I oh, okay. feel like I'm going to hand it off to you, even though oh. I started the show. <laughs> so what kind of questions you got for us, David? Well, first of all, I'll just say that this is a novel that was first published in November of 1962 in the Soviet literary magazine, Novi Mir, which means New World. It is, of course, set in a Soviet labor camp in the early 1950s and features the day of prisoner Ivan Denisovich Shukov. Um, and I'm sure someone will correct my, all my pronunciations, which are always bad, as we learned when I couldn't say Basil correctly. I mean, it um, comes by it honestly. There's an alternative pronunciation to that word, but not well, really to Denisovich. Maybe, Denisovich. I don't know. I'm sure, there's, I'm sure we could come up with a, 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 an alternative pronunciation to any Russian. Somebody will let us. Yeah. Any Russian word. I listen I had, to a lot of wine podcasts, like a lot of them. And the um the hosts are always talking about how much feedback they get on their wine pronunciations. Yeah, yeah. Uh from listeners, concerned listeners, which I'm kind of like, maybe calm down. Maybe don't send in a correction to everything you ever hear on the internet. But yeah, yeah. If someone wants to correct our pronunciation, I might tell you to calm down privately, but I'll be nice <laughs> to you. But, you won't. You'll be. You'll do it nicely. Yeah. Tim, how I'll many do times it have you? My head. <laughs> how many times have you? Uh, have you read this book? This is only my third read, and okay. now that I'm halfway through the third read, I'm like, why haven't I read this book more? It's so good. It's like so good. I can't believe how good it is. Heidi, yep. how many times have you read it? This is my second time, and I'm with Tim. I'm like, why do I not just like have this book memorized? It's Yeah, it's so great. So I'm finding it a little, a touch ironic that we're reading this book and we're discussing this book on this podcast and Tim is in a closet. He's in the, like he basically is in a little cell. Yes. He's not in the closet. Let's not get, (laughs) this is how rumors get started. He's in a closet. He's in a specific physical closet. Right. With belts hanging behind him on the wall. Right. Um, it looks a little sinister. The, if you turn the light off, it'd be just like something straight out of this book, probably. Um, no, he's gonna he's gonna do it. Oh, <laughs> oh it looks really it, creepy. It does, it does look a little creepy. It looks it's really like creepy. The light of the computer. Oh, Heidi picture. wanted to take a picture. Now, so I'm meanwhile, gonna... Heidi is at Jackson, her husband's, her family's company, and you're in the like. Uh, I'm in a little recording closet. You're in the pod, the recording yeah, pod. It's like a little pod. <laughs> and your company, Jackson, makes. Cells. <laughs> yeah, no, Next, that's true. Boxes to hide in. Boxes. That's so, right. That I mean, are I mean, resistant to EMP. Right. Pulse. Right. And I just think this is interesting. We're reading a book about uh, people that's in right. a Siberian it's all of a piece. And, and the two of you are in, living the dream. You're in yeah, a little recording studio too. That's true. This is the world. This is the world we're in now. So this is confession time for me. This is my first time ever reading this book. Mm. And, um, it's pretty good. Yeah. It's, it's pretty, pretty good. Pretty good. Yeah. It's pretty good. It's pretty good, he says. So have are you guys like Solzhenitsynites? Solzhenitsyners? Yeah, for sure. What 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 qualifies one as being a Solzhenitsyner? You've read uh several of his works. You are generally uh in favor of his um existence and uh work and um would recommend him to lots of people. Mainly, I'm asking, have you read more than just this book? I've only read this and a truncated version of the Gulag Archipelago. Yeah, okay. An abridged I, version, something Yeah, the one that's it. instead of like three books, it's one book, but right, it's still very right. fat. Yeah. Yeah. And that, he, he, I think, authorized it. Like he said, this is a good version. Yes. Oh, did he really? He, he was the one that helped, if not do that actual that's abridgment. He, uh, he approves of it. He endorsed as a, it. Yeah, he endorsed it. Yeah. Heidi, have you read the Gulag? I have. He was my, a couple of years ago, he was my author that I read his whole canon over the course of a year. Um, 
But I, I had read the shortened version, the one you're talking about, the condensed version before. And then I just read everything I could get his hand on, like all of his nonfiction. I listened to a bunch of um, some his recordings of his voice. Like I, I'm crazy about Solzhenitsyn. I think he's wonderful. So this is a guy who had an incredible life. He lived from 1918 to 2008. And so he, he died at age 89. And his biography is is incredible. I mean, he he was a Soviet dissident, critic of communism, and is known for you. If you just look at Wikipedia, it's going to talk about how he raised awareness of the gulag system and, and all those sorts of things. So he's he's one of the most important people probably of the 20th, 20th century, full stop, um, let alone... Agreed. Uh, literary, uh, like literary figures. Um, it, would you say... I, I, I mean, this is the book we're going to talk about. So it's if the answer to this is is no, that that's kind of tough for those of us who are reading this book for the first time. Would you say this is the place to start with Solzhenitsyn, or would you read the Gulag or something else first? Have I would you read, read this a bunch? first. Okay. I would read this okay. first for sure. Uh, the Gulag's amazing, but it's a lot longer, more famous um, mm-hmm. in the sense of like the quotes that you see floating around from Solzhenitsyn are mostly from the Gulag. Um, but this is a a remarkable beginning. Um, he ended up winning the 1970 Nobel Prize in Literature, and I, you know between this and the Gulag, I think they both were um, pretty pretty big reasons why. Tim, I'll ask you this first: What do you think is the most important or the most essential thing about this book? Now that you're reading it for the third time, that's not a question I usually ask um, on this show, but because this book and this author have some real political import during the 20th century, I think it's worth at least being aware of how essential it is in terms of the service that his canon provides us. So what's the most important thing to take out of the book? Is that what you're... you're like, what do you think this is the essential thing that this book offers? Is it is it something on a literary level? Is it a political message? Is it a dramatic, you know, the dramatic uh, context that he's creating for us? I think it's, I think there's two answers to it. One of them is, do you want to read this book as sort of like a standalone literary piece, which I think that you can, because I think it's it's like so well done. Just the craft behind the story, the characterization, every part of it meets like the standards of like just quality. The other thing is this is a book that is really heavy with historical import. Um, and it's probably worth talking about that a little bit. It was published after Solzhenitsyn did spend, I think he spent 11 years in um, a gulag. Do you know what he was sent away for? Do either of you know why he did 11 years? I do, but I want you, you to say it. You for say calling it. I Stalin. felt like a rhetorical question. <laughs> <laughs> it was, but I thought you probably would know since yeah. you had your your phase. He called Stalin the boss. That was, and he did it in like prison slang, whatever. Um, that got him 11 years. So that's the world that he was living in. And this is, the, to me, it is absolutely insane that this book was approved by the Soviet authorities. Specifically, it was approved by Khrushchev. And I was like, I have to understand how Khrushchev allowed this to happen because this was, as someone wrote in a foreword to this book, the first glimpse behind the barbed wire of the gulag system that had ever been published. And apparently it was followed by tons and tons of writings about um, the gulag system and like, like lives of prisoners doing little autobiographies and stuff like that. And soon the Soviet authorities were like, yeah, we can't do this anymore. And they shut it down, but they let this through the censors and they think it's, well, the story is that Khrushchev who replaced Stalin went through a period of liberalization and he wanted to kind of um, de-Stalinize the Soviet Union as much as he could while keeping the communist regime still intact. Um, So he personally allowed this book to be um, published and he celebrated publicly. This is so crazy. uh, Solzhenitsyn. Like he had him up on stage and called him our contemporary Tolstoy. 
And so it's a miracle that it got through. Solzhenitsyn did not remain in good stead with the Soviet authorities for much longer. But at the beginning, this being his first book, it was extremely successful for giving people a glimpse behind the barbed wire of the gulag system. Just, hmm. I mean, Khrushchev, Khrushchev worked under Stalin, but then as soon as he could, he does everything he can to undermine that influence and, you know, to distance himself from it. And I, like, in some ways, it feels like Solzhenitsyn in this book became a bit of a political pawn, but it's so good that it transcended it transcended that it transcended yeah. just, just being able to be used for a political purposes of one particular candidate or person because it was telling the truth in an artful way. Um, there's a quote by Vitaly Korotich who said that the Soviet union was destroyed by information. And this wave started from Solzhenitsyn's one day. Mm. Um, so that's, you know, that's the kind of book that we're talking about here. And we're not going to just spend all of our time talking about the history. There's, we're doing two episodes on this plus the Q and a. So you have a, if we don't talk about something related to the history or the movement, the movements that it's a part of, then you can ask a question in the Q&A. We can cover that. Um, hi, did you want to add anything else to this? Or can I ask you a different question? It's up to, no, up to no, you. please. Ask me a different question. So we've got, on the one hand, the political import, the influence of this work. But what is it about this book that you think stands out from an artistic standpoint? Like what we're only doing two episodes on it. It's not very long, so that, that that's okay, but it only allows us to go so deep into you know, all the different elements of it. So for you, and yes, I'm vamping just a bit here to give you a second to think. For you, what is the art? What are the one or two things that most stand out for you on the artistic and the aesthetic side? Right. It's difficult to write a novel about one day in the life of anybody especially a novel about a person who's living a drab, dehumanized existence in a work camp. Uh, and and that that's the whole point, is to shed a light on that drab, dehumanized, uh, savage existence that, that Ivan and everybody around him lives um, in a ugly bombshell of a place, right? And, and yet this book is gripping um it it makes that one day an epic journey of the soul even though it's very clear that that one day is one of 10,000 days 25 years of days a man who thinks he's never going to to get out um and it's and it is a story of him fighting for his dignity for his humanity uh and 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 he, for Solzhenitsyn to write like that and get it past the censors, as as Tim said, uh, to to write a novel that is a clarion call for a humane existence, and yet to be able to that's that seems obvious, but also it's hidden within the uh, fabric of the story. You kind of have to dig for it the way that that Ivan is. Um, and he succeeds so beautifully. The characters are so well drawn. Uh, all of the little moments feel vibrant um, and compelling, even though they are part of a drab dehumanized existence. I don't know how he did it, right? It's one of those, like, when I look at Shakespeare and I think, how did Shakespeare do what he did? I kind of think the same with um, Solzhenitsyn with this book and especially with with the Gulag, in which he was much more straightforward in the Gulag, what he was doing with this one. He got it past the censors. That's amazing. Um, yeah, right. Yeah, there had to yeah. be a subtlety to it to, to manage yeah. that, yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that that's at least part of my answer. Do you have anything to add to that? Either of you? I would echo what you say. I mean, has food ever tasted so good as like this gruel oatmeal that they eat, which the way that he describes eating food, one of two meals they get a day, is that right? They only get two meals a day and it's terrible food, but as he describes it, it's the most incredible delectable food that we have ever eaten in a literary world because we're so desperate for it absolutely desperate for any sort of sustenance it's the cold for me oh yeah like the cold that and it's how everywhere. desperate they are to be warm like i can feel Wraps it. the cloth around it and then tapes it the little and rag yeah. the yeah. one thing they get yeah yeah 
What about you, David? Um, I like what you were saying a second ago about how it's about one day and how hard it is to write about a single day about anybody, let alone somebody who's going through li- living in a gulag. And yet, I found now maybe it's because it's the first time that I've read this, so I'm, I'm the newbie. I'm a newbie to this one, but I still found myself losing track of the time of day that we were in. I knew that it was earlier in the day because I'm earlier in the book, right? But there were still times when I couldn't quite place how much time had passed. And even like, wait, where are we in the camp? What's this camp look like? And I don't mean that, like, that's not a, that's not a complaint. It's, it's, there is a sort of timelessness and placelessness to it, which normally we would say, okay, creating the world is an essential part of it. And it, and it is like, there is a world that is still created here that we get to experience and that we can, there's a, there's a tactile expression of that, or at least an expression of the tactile elements of that world in a very vivid way. And yet it would make sense that someone living in this environment would lose track of how much of the day has gone by. You know, what, when you're, when everything's sort of the same, there is, there be time stops mattering. Right. And they don't even let them have, was it, they don't, they don't even let them know what time it is because the prisoners will tell them. And so I found that I was getting that experience as well, that I was kind of losing track of where we were in the day. Um, and, and again, that's, that's, I mean this as a, uh, uh, like a, 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 a praise. Like I think I'm right. I mean that in a good way. I'm not complaining about it. <laughs> right. It Cause purposeful. the day has this endless quality to it. Mm, um, yeah. That's that, and, maybe not timeless. Endless is good. Yes. Yeah. And it's very tightly structured, like Tim said, but you get, lost in the little details of the narrative the same way that Ivan does like right he's after all these years he knows I have to make this tiny scrap of bread like Tim pointed out these tiny little nuggets of old dry bread that he has they eats in such a purposeful way um and like he has to make that the event of the day. He has to make everything have this import to it uh, in order to survive. Um, and but what I like about Ivan is that he's he's a very specific person, a very specific, well-drawn person, but he also is like an everyman. He's not like an intellectual. He's not um he's he's just a regular guy who's who is figured out this way to kind of dignify his life and maintain his humanity in these unbearable conditions um, in very small human ways, in very ordinary human ways. Uh, and I think I find that more compelling than someone who's, you know, an intellectual or a religious, some somebody with like a deep religious conviction, whatever. He's just a regular guy. And I, I just find that so compelling in this novel. It's a, uh... I kept thinking of Gentleman of Moscow. Hmm. As, exactly. Like, he's not that guy. He's not yeah. like, and even, yeah. even that book is like consumed with food, right? Yes. Food and wine. And there's this, the way it describes these meals and the tastes and, and all that. And it's really wonderful in that way. And yet to Tim's point, the gruel here is every bit as mesmerizing to him as a, gla- a glass of wine in A Gentleman of Moscow. Tim, what stands out for you about this this character? How uh, crafty he is. He he has always got, this is part of the reason I think the book works so well. He has always got an angle that he's working on. If I make it to this place early, I might get a little bit more food. If I... Um, keep this bread i might be able to get into the bottom of the gruel bowl um if i befriend this person i might get x from them like always has got an angle and i think all of these little episodes are like okay is he going to be victorious in this little pursuit that he has if he if he is then he'll survive the next whatever 2 hours of his life and and everybody is sort of like him in that way. There's a lot of variety of personality, but remember the um, the Mason 
the mason's job is kind of dependent on having a trowel and this trowel has to be of a certain weight and if he can do if he can use the trowel of this certain weight then he can make great inroads in his work and so what does he do well he has to hide the trowel but if he hides it and it's like taken over by another work crew then he'll get in trouble everybody is like always on an angle to keep from getting abused by the authorities with mm-hmm. kind of um ensuring that the laws are kept in some way and keeping the bosses happy it's like your whole job is to your your whole survival is bent on these little tactics that you engage in constantly throughout the day just to keep yourself from freezing to death and to, from dying from starvation. And everybody is kind of in that scenario. We're most closely attuned to it through our main character, you know, because we're in his head more yeah. than we're in anybody else's head. So I was thinking about how there's a whole like genre of, especially of movies, but also of literature to some degree, um, that is like the prison story. Um, you've got obviously the great escape is maybe the most famous of those, but they also have like Billy Wilder's dialogue 17, which is about a German POW camp. And one of the things that you get in a lot of those kinds of stories is the crew. And there's almost mm. this, um, heist element to it where each of them have their roles and you've got a couple of leaders, you know, like in uh bridge over the river Kauai, you know, they're, you know, there's a couple guys that are leading the way, and then a couple one guy's like in the if it was in a heist thing, you'd be like the guy who's good at safe cracking or explosives or whatever. But in a prison movie, it's there's the guy who's like he's got a great relationship. He's like charming, so he's got a good relationship with the prison guards. And you've got one guy who's like the little guy who sneaks out, or one guy who's like is was an engineer in another life, and the other guy who's an officer, and now everyone follows him. And in a way, you sort of have that here. In a way you have the Baptist guy who hides the Bible and the guys that you're talking about, but because it's one day, you don't have this heist or this big quest. And so I was thinking about what is it that keeps the narrative moving forward, despite there not really being the quest. It's not the escape of Ivan Denisovich. So what is it that keeps this book moving forward? What gives it the momentum and the, the emotional stakes other than just suffering? Is there anything else, Heidi? I think that's a really great question and speaks to your earlier question, what makes this novel so fantastic? Because if I I was I was describing this to somebody uh the other day. Someone was asking me the next book we're reading on close reads, and I said, We're reading this one. They asked what it's about, they hadn't heard of it. So I was telling them. And as I was telling them what this novel is about, on the one hand, I realized it sounds very, very exciting, right? Like this is the story of a Zek in a prison camp. Um and uh and it, yeah. and so that 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 has big stakes in itself. It's one of the most significant uh, events of, um, and like has the most emotional weight almost of almost anything in the 20th century. That experience, right? Um, but on the other hand, when I was describing the day, like it follows the day and how he is working and what he eats and the clothes that he wears and how cold it is and whether or not he's going he's trying to figure out if he's going to get out of work because he's sick right and Mm -hmm. um that isn't very exciting at all that's so mundane and so it's this um it's all the stuff the heist story would not include that's right it's this juxtaposition between this intensity of life and suffering uh, the stakes are so high as to be un- unimaginable for people like you and me. But yeah. then on the other hand, like the stakes are so low in the sense that it's just, what's he going to, is he going to eat his bread in two sittings or just one? Is If if there's a hole in his boots, is he, like, how is he going to guard it from the cold, right? Like, and so that it, that juxtaposition is, I think, very compelling. But the, artistically, I think on a literary level, he does it at the beginning through the sickness. Like some, mm. we feel this sense of something is 
something is at stake with whether or not he goes to the infirmary or not. Um, and he's sick throughout the entire day. Um, and you're kind of on tenterhooks wondering how that's going to impact whatever this sense of impending something. I, I think you're feeling throughout the book, there's mm. there's some kind of turn coming that hinges on how sick he is. Um, yeah, and, that's interesting. And, and, I, and, that, and that gives it a little bit of stakes, so you're not even quite sure what the stakes are, and yet you just keep reading. It, this book struck me as being both like so human which any really good book has to be and and by that i mean like i really feel like i know is it shukov mind mm-hmm. saying his name right I, yeah you call him like i know shukov I, ids so well and and he's like I, I can. I, I'm like. I would do the same thing. I think if I were in that system, I would act that way. He's he's a cipher for the way that any of us would behave under that kind of system, and that system is so unbelievably like it's just a demonic system that it makes everyone in the book act less than human because everybody is. There's no friendships really in the book like friendship is a luxury yeah. and there's no romance of course there's not a woman in the book there's only like maybe a few memories of women by the book but there's no possibility for friendship for grace for the things that we think are kind of like most human now we'll see a little bit later on of course but in the first half of the book everybody it is a war of all against all every man for himself um and the only reason that things don't break out in outright warfare is because it would expose you more to the cold and more to potential violence. So tactically, it's not the best thing to do. There's a, um, did you, did you, which, which edition are you guys reading? Same as yours, David. Okay. Mine's a little different. <clears throat> do you know which translation that is, by the way, Heidi? Uh, it's the same one. You probably have H.T. Willits. It's the only yeah, English okay. translation that's been endorsed by Solzhenitsyn. So I think this one is the earlier one. Well, there's two. Ralph Parker. Because, okay, yours is a different translation. There's actually two versions even of the Willits translation. The one that he got past the censors, the original version. And then there's one later that has uh, his original text um, that is a little bit more, um, and that's usually the one we have. Like the American translation, it, the American version is usually the second one that has some things that didn't originally get past the censors that he adds um, later on as he intended them to be uh, when he was right. exiled to the West. Okay. I think this, yeah, I think this is slightly different. This edition at the back has the afterword by Eric Bogosian. Um, And in it, he talks about the concept of like this framing device, um, which is, you know, which you guys were just kind of talking to, talking about. I think this. About the sickness, um, you mean? Or what framing device? Yeah, what framing framing device device of it being one day. Oh, yes. And how that plays into the sickness and the lack of like the relationships and all that that Tim was just talking about. Um, And. He talks, he, he kind of says in here that like his favorite one day story is John Cheever's short story, The Swimmer. Did you guys oh, know that yeah. story? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So he says that when in, in that story, Cheever manages to cram an entire life into one afternoon and the protagonist decides to swim every swimming pool in his suburban town, crossing every neighborhood. In the course of his travels, he meets people from his past. And in that way, we learn about his life, his sins and his failures. It's a cool idea that was made into an even cooler movie starring Burt Lancaster in 1968, says Eric Bogosian. Then it says, um, doing this as a frame for a novel is even more dynamic because it expands the grid of inspection so much that an entire universe of detail can be poured in. If you're going to spend all day with one person or a small group of people, you're going to learn a lot. And this information will grow past the boundaries of what, where, when into the very marrow of the character's consciousness and society. And he talks about Ulysses a little bit. And then later on, he talks about how... um, out of little becomes big because the more specific the description of a minor incident, the closer we get to the structure and qualities of the protagonist's consciousness. 
literature with a capital L, he says. The author draws us inside the character's mind. Um, and th- like he keeps going, he goes on and on here about like the mundane, the the essential like aesthetic value of the mundane in in creating, in telling a story that is meant to reveal something. So it can be both like he can use this framing device, like the the like he can make one day into a metaphor, but he can also reveal what he wants to reveal by narrowing his focus so much. Because he could have easily written, you know, the life of Ivan Denisovich in the gulag or 10 years in the 10 years in the gulag or whatever. Right. Like other, well, other the people gulag have done is this. a long-term story, right? right. It's right. Right. a very right. yeah. long-term sweeping story. Uh, right. And, but he chose in this case, to your point, to limit it to one day for a purpose. Right. And I love, and I like what, I think what you what he's saying here, this the comments about how the the mundane, the narrow focus of that kind of ac- helps him accomplish what you guys are describing here, and it adds like a great deal of of power. And that and even like in focusing on the mundane, that's one of the reasons why there's not it's not clear like what the relationships are. Um, over time, those relationships would evolve, right? Like you know, Tim, you mentioned there's not it's not clear who the alliances are and who the friend. There's no there's no romance, obviously, but. You know, there's no friendship, but write a story about eight years, maybe a friendships or enemies emerge and things like that. But because he's trying to, because he focuses on the mundane details, it actually ter- orients the reader towards what the story is actually trying to do. So do you think though, that in doing that, in in, in focusing in that way, the story, um, does it, does it, is that limited scope of virtue uh, fully? Or do you think that from a dramatic standpoint, it it feels a little bit like m- making a point? Like, do, well, let me let me ask it this way: How does he manage? To, for me, it doesn't feel like he's making a point, and yet he's making a point. So, how does Solzhenitsyn manage to write a book that is making a point, a political point, even without it feeling like he's beating you over the head like a lot of other books do when they're trying to make a political point? I, that's a really good question, and I think my Right off the top of my head, I have two answers. One is what you would you just said uh, about the one day uh, that this is the life of a single person for one day, and it's very clear in the story that one day is like every day, right? And and that one man is like one man's experience is um, both shared and isolated by every other man there. Shared in the sense that they all are living this day over and over and over again ad nauseum with the same limitations, the same kinds of sufferings, the same risks, uh, the same violence and savagery. Um, And so in that sense, it's shared. But in another uh, equally real sense, it's completely isolated for all all the reasons that Tim said, uh, that there's no possible camaraderie in a in, in a world like this, in which there is no justice, um, in which the right. entire point yeah. is to break the spirit of each person so that they become mere cogs in a machine and are punished for offenses, both imaginary and real. Um, and and in that sense, they're totally isolated. And and so it's both one day and every day, both one man and every man, right? Um, and the limitations of having it be one man in one day highlights that. It makes it more human, I think, Tim, as you as you talked about, um, because we can each put ourselves in this person's shoes. Um, and I I read a lot of these gulag narratives, probably you guys do too. Um, you know, the gulag archipelago the aviator, uh, Father Arseni, um, right? Like there's all kinds of these stories that are out there now, as you brought up earlier. But this one to me is uh, is compelling because it's about an ordinary person. And a lot of those other ones are about extraordinary people. Um, yeah, yeah. And, um, and so I think that that also accomplishes uh, that thing that you said of making it not feel like it's beating you over the head with some kind of like ideology. And you kind of get the feeling that this is going to be just one day. Like he's not going to escape. He's not going to die. Like this is just a day in his long and unbearable life. And that's what we get. And the stakes of that for us 
kind of steeped in the Western literary tradition that are expecting some kind of theatrics. Um, we're expecting, like you said, the heist narrative. Um, and it's clear from the beginning, I think, that we're just not going to get that. That has stakes in and of itself hmm. um, that create question marks and ongoing meditations after you put the book down. It's the thing that shocks me about the book is just how much effort is required and energy is required to just keep going so much. And to think that this is one man out of how many people were in the gulag system just when he was there, like hundreds of thousands. And I think that's what makes his point so powerfully is that readers maybe have a notion like that maybe we have about the American prison system. Like it's horrible, right? Like we know it's horrible. We know that nobody, we know it's like in desperate need of reform, but you get three meals a day. You're, um, you've got, you know, hopefully a cot to yourself and you're, if you make the right alliances, you're hopefully going to survive. Right. And so I, my hunch is that most of the people in the Soviet era probably Soviet era probably thought of the gulags as like that. Like nobody wants to be there. It's super cold. But I don't think that anybody was thinking it is a desperate and ruthless fight to survive each hour of every day. And it requires everything of your will and your intellect just to kind of like make it through a work day. I think that part was a shock. And so in that way, he doesn't need to make any points at all. He doesn't need to, you know, like insert any sort of ideological, gosh, I bet they don't do things like this in the West. You know, he doesn't need to say that because all he has to do is just show what it's actually like in one day and he's made his point. This is like what Soviet era, Soviet era gulags are like. They're That's just kind great. of hell on earth. That's great. Hey, so Tim, we know that you're a rush. You you're a great lover. Well, we all are. But you you're a great lover of the the Russian of Russian literature of the Russian yeah. novels, Anna Karenina and War and Peace and so forth. And you even read the long farming passages. I do. Do you? So what? How is this book? Russian, do you think? Like, what makes it like the other great Russian mm. stories, the other great examples of Russian literature? And I don't, you can't say it takes place in the cold, right? And then that the names are uh, unpronounceable by those of us who don't know what we're talking about. If we have not gotten to the end of the book yet, so this is going to be a little bit of a precursor to that, but I think for me, what the Russians that we remember best are kind of preoccupied with their internal state. So mm. Levin in Anna Karenina and Pierre in War and Peace and Alyosha in Brothers Karamazov, like everything kind of hinges on the internal state. And it seems to me like we will see that later on in this book, that that is what the, I'm not going to say right now in the book, it's the chief preoccupation of um, Shukov, but I think it's part of what Solzhenitsyn is going to want us to see by the end. I think right now it's all like animal instinct, but there's something deeper, or maybe you could say something higher that is going to, present itself to our main character. And that seems like a very Russian approach. Maybe the other thing that I would say is like this kind of preoccupation with suffering, you know, I mean, <laughs> of course yeah. it's a, it's set in a gulag. It's going to be about suffering, but I do think that is kind of a habit of Russians. There's this kind of, there's just a preoccupation with suffering and the meaning of suffering. If it's meaningful or if it's not meaningful. Heidi, do you want to jump in on this question too? No, I think that that's really well said. There's this sense within the novel that of, of something that with Shukov's um, and of unending vigilance to maintain uh, an ordinary equilibrium in his drab and dehumanizing existence and savage existence in that vigilance, that effort 
in doing that, he's somehow holding space for something meaning making to happen to him. Hmm. And and I, I, I think that there's little things within the first half of the book that um, that indicate that there's references all the time to um, uh, to things in the camp that are kind of a um, a gross parody um, or remind him of former religious things. Right, the way that when his number is painted on, um, it looks the the movement of the man who does it with his fingers looks like a priest putting holy oil on his forehead. Right. Um, And there's several examples of that, of things that in the camp are kind of empty vacancies of the former meaningful life. And Mm. those things are not yet connected to anything real happening uh, with Shukov. But, but in doing that, I think Solzhenitsyn is planting seeds Um that that let us know that that equilibrium that Shukov is maintaining um, doesn't mean he's just living on the surface. It just means that that's what's necessary for him right now, and that kind of holds in place um, an opportunity for a meaning making experience there. And mm-hmm. and that I think is um, a lot of the the even the sense of maybe not hope, but this is not a despairing novel in the first half, even though it's unflinching in it in, in its look and this life. Um, and I think that that's part of it. I think that's why. Before we go, I want to ask you guys to point towards one or two items. I'm just going to put it that way. I was going to say images, but this book is so, you know, I mentioned the idea of like the meaning of mundane things, which really takes over, takes the focus of a lot of this book. Is there something that the book focuses on that is of particular that's particularly meaningful to you or like is um and that could meaningful could be it kind of breaks your heart or it inspires you or you know to to put it in kind of like trite ways um but like the he takes the he gives us these mundane things and they become these like really big images so for me, one of those things would be his spoon, yeah, which he was like, he keeps in his shoe. Which is in a way gross. <laughs> I don't want to let me rephrase that. Which is gross. And yet it's this very like that that image is it's it's both a real thing that like you someone would do. He's he's clinging to some to like a form of civilization, to something that's his own. There's all these different ways you can read it. And you can also read it as like a literary metaphor. And like that that's where I think Solzhenitsyn seems to have this real skill. Because you can in any of those ways, you could write a master's thesis on any of on, on the on the spoon as a literary image or as a piece of mundane human existence that is tethering him to reality and allowing him to keep going. So do you guys have anything like that that has stood out to you? I stole the spoon. Um, but anything else jump out to you? Or do you want to add anything on the spoon, Tim? The needle and thread that he uses to sew... Doesn't he sew a little piece of bread into his mattress? I mean... The fact that he has to be on guard from the authorities about saving a little corner of bread, so much so that he has to sew it into his mattress, that in and of itself kind of tells you everything you need to know about how terrible the conditions are. Yeah. Yeah. What about you, Heidi? Oh, so many. But um, when. When they called the throat slittings strange things, like strange things or afoot, strange occurrences are happening, um, like people having their throats slit in their beds, that's not strange. That's absolutely horrifying. But in a world like this, that's just like yet one more weird thing. Yeah, right. right. And um, kind of the the. The casual acceptance of the savageness and the isolation of this world uh, is, I mean, that's survival. I was just having a conversation about uh, with my husband about this, about how our adaptability as humans is both our blessing and our curse, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that this is, it is what 
when we can adapt to any circumstance, that's a great thing about being human, but it's also, um, it has this dark underbelly of, um, of becoming a casual acceptance of this kind of world, which is survival. You have to be, um, you can no longer, it's, it's inappropriate. It's unsustainable to have, uh, to in a in a world like this and in, in a savage culture um like this to have the to have a proper response proper human response to death it has to become casual um mm. and so that that particular Wait, that again, stuck out to, to have to have a proper respect yeah. for death it has to be what do you a mean proper you... response yeah because death is horrifying it ought to like having having two people having their throats slit in their beds one night is not strange it's horrifying right. so but you said the response the proper response is it casual prop, no i the proper response isn't casual the proper oh, okay, response okay. is horrified but yeah, 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 yeah. that's okay. unsustainable to have the proper response like you eventually have to just kind you of have to, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Got it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Just, just wanted to clarify. Just, that. yes, you have to just accept that in a situation like this, um, and yet he's still fighting for his dignity and for so his do you humanity. Think, okay, do you think he is just sort of like adapting to the situation? Like, there's a difference between adapting and like not letting it. Um, what's uh, be not becoming um, callous towards it. Like this is this is this about a character who allows himself to still have the right like moral stance towards the th- things that he's experiencing, and yet to, but you also can't dwell on them all the time. Right. Yeah. I don't think that they're. Ca- I don't think he's callous. Um, okay. yeah. But I think that he has adapted. Yes, I do. I, that might be a good question for next week. Whether or not yeah. he actually has any sort of moral stance. I mean. Clearly, he hates it. But, but does what is his moral stance in prison? Yeah, it's a good. Yeah, one. that's a. We should hold on to that because. Yeah, mm-hmm. I was thinking, it's not something we can answer till we get to the end yeah. of the book. I think, but there was like, what kind of moral stance can you have when living in a situation like right. that? And does the book comment on that? And I haven't read the end of it, so. <laughs> right. That's something I was thinking thinking about. Um, any final thoughts before we wrap it up? This first episode on one day? Nope. Not for me. All right. Well, uh, if you guys want to, you know, I can leave and you guys can finish the episode without me if you'd like. <laughs> um, you started without me. You can end without me. You guys can talk about, you could like, you could talk about my my bad takes, um, how you could do a better job. I don't know. You could just talk about whatever you want. I got to go um, too. So this okay. is the all end. Right, so, all right. So you're just, just, you stay on. You just record, do a monologue for a while. Okay. And when you're done, just go ahead and end it. I'll do that. That's what I'm going to do. All right. All right. Well, you guys can listen to Tim. In the meantime, for How You White, for Tim McIntosh, I'm David Kern. Until next time, happy reading. Happy reading.